Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Brendan Coventry. He's an associate professor of surgery in Adelaide, uh, University of South Australia. Uh, today, I want to have him on to talk about uh, the cancer book that I'm putting together. Uh, Brendan and I had two really super interesting interviews in the past, which you can look up if you'd like, you know, by Googling. But today, again, we're going to talk about the cancer book. So, Brendan, thanks for coming back. Yeah, my pleasure, Richard. Yeah. Before I get into the standard questions I would normally ask, uh, you mentioned offline that there's some new breakthroughs in cancer that you think would help guide the discussion. So let's go over that first. What What's some of the newest new that you've seen in regards to cancer? Well, there's a whole lot of new stuff, but uh, uh, the, the, the thing that's really caught my eye has been this notion of uh, immunotherapy and the timing of immunotherapy. Um, for example, uh, and this is really at a very fundamental level. So maybe it can it can be the timing aspect can be put a lot finer. But um, just at the moment, we're using immunotherapy in the prescribed doses, in the prescribed intervals, uh, and in the prescribed way that uh, these were tested. Uh, now, in in the testing phase, these were largely run by drug companies. So so you know they had. Uh, particular views about their drugs. Uh, they knew a lot about how uh, the half-lives of the drugs and so on, but they didn't know a lot about the uh, interaction with the immune system at a really fine level, probably as fine as we need to know. So uh, so all, all of the treatment has has largely been around the way that we we surgically resect, or if you can't surgically resect, the sort of disease that that is put into groups and then treated with the uh, these predicated doses of of immunotherapy. So um, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know whether, for example, smaller doses, larger doses, doses at different intervals, doses given intermittently, doses given in bursts, uh, doses given by certain Roots, for example, a lot of these immunotherapies are quite effective uh, subcutaneously, but they're given intravenously, and and sometimes there's some some rules and laws around those to do with reimbursement too. So there's there's all sorts of there's all sorts of things that that can impinge on on what we measure, the way we do our studies, and what we measure. Now, there's another way you can do it too. You so you can do it sort of after surgery, or you can do it where surgery doesn't work. In, in terms of trying to prevent it coming back uh, if it's after surgery and it's all been taken out or apparently all been taken out. And you can, you can also treat where the disease is well-established and, and can't be removed. 
So they've been trialled quite a bit lately, and there's still a lot more going on with that. But there's another aspect too. If you've got a tumour that um, may be eligible for surgery, so it might be in one spot, say, in the body, and uh, it may be able to be removed surgically, the question is, do you do your surgery now, or do you give your immunotherapy first, and then do your surgery? Uh, so I had thought that, uh, at least in the U.S., the standard of care is required first, and then other things can be done. I, don't, I didn't think there was any leeway, but maybe there is. There is in, in trials. So, so where you're testing one treatment against another, for example, you might have a group where you do surgery first, followed by immunotherapy. Uh, you may have another group where you do uh, immunotherapy first, followed by surgery, and compare the two. Now, again, there's, there's a whole lot of permutations you can use here as to the type of surgery, the type of immunotherapy, the, the timing of these, you know, how you go about delivery. But just ignore that just for a minute. Let's just look at the, at the basics of whether you give one thing first and then the other thing second or the other way around. So there's been a lot done with this thing called a neoadjuvant chemotherapy. This is now chemotherapy. Uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy and there's been a lot of successes recorded with neo so-called neoadjuvant neo meaning new adjuvant meaning to help so so uh, this this type of neoadjuvant treatment being given early as opposed to and and then maybe followed by surgery as opposed to uh, it being given after surgery to try and prevent it coming back um, so, which is which is standard adjuvant treatment. That's adjuvant treatment is is treatment that's added onto, like radiation treatment or chemotherapy, say, that's added after surgery uh, to treatment to try and improve outcome. So, uh, so-called neoadjuvant, where you give it first, uh, is really showing some really interesting findings because what it's demonstrating is that you, if you boost the immune system first before you take out the tumour. You may not even need to take out the tumour, of course, because sometimes the results are so good, the tumour disappears and you really don't know where to operate anymore. You've got right. to, sometimes you can see a bit of scarring, but, but sometimes it can disappear altogether. The problem is it doesn't always do that. And, and what happens is the tumour can still persist and when it's taken out surgically, uh, you can actually find it in some cases. So it's not one size fits all. It doesn't, it's not 100% of patients that are doing a particular thing. Some patients are, some patients aren't, and some patients have a sort of mixed response in between. So what but are you trying to discover? Trying to not only the effect of this, yeah. or, but, but uh, why it doesn't Abs- work Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 we're trying to sort of work out some keys into to sort of unlock uh, how we might deliver treatment. And this is showing us some insights into the tumour microenvironment, uh, how tumours are behaving, what sort of ways the immune system might be being able to be manipulated. Because we know that it, it's manipulated with surgery itself, uh, just the act of, of surgery, and maybe even anaesthesia has a role here too. And we also know that in a percentage of patients, the immune system is manipulated with the immunotherapy too. And that's, of course, the whole aim of it. But in some patients, it doesn't seem to be manipulated at all. It's um, really quite interesting. This, this is very nebulous. What, what immunotherapy is? What, what are the mechanisms? Let's get into a specific so we can really grab a hold of this. Well, well absolutely. But we just don't know. You know, there, there's... There's a lot of well, for a, for a given things. immunotherapy, uh, though, what what evidence is there to show that it shrinks tumors, and in what way? Like, again, we can go into the specifics. Is it a a CAR T therapy? Like, what is the specific immunotherapy under this umbrella? What's the mechanism? And then maybe we can ask questions around it. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership, from $10 to $49 a month, 
including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I've spoken pretty generally, but the sorts of therapies that are being used currently in this role, this neoadjuvant role, classically anti-PD-1, anti-programmed death receptor therapies, uh, like some some sort of trade names are, are nivolumab or pembrolizumab, which is types of, of anti-programmed death receptor therapies. And what they do is they, they block the death receptor on lymphocytes to try and stop their death. So if that receptor is activated, then they die, the um, lymphocytes die. If it's blocked and it's not activated, then the cells live longer. So that this prolongs the life of immune cells close to the tumour. So that's one type of therapy. Another is the anti is, 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 uh, is this on liquid tumours or solid tumours only? Uh, well, it's on both. Um, it's on uh, the, the anti-PD-1 actually binds to the PD-1 molecule on lymphocytes. So these are the lymphocytes within the tumour or close to the tumour or that can actually infiltrate into the tumour. So we're talking about something that's related to the immune system, not necessarily related to the tumour cells themselves. Well, how do you know the anti-PD-1 effect only is exhibited on the lymphocytes and not on the tumours themselves? It's really by tissue expression. So you can look at the tumour and the tumour can express some of the ligands, the PD-L1s on the surface, and that can activate PD-1 on the lymphocytes. And so the, as the lymphocytes are called in, they're switched off, which is really interesting. And it's something that was noticed um, you know, quite a number of years ago. A chap called Alastair Cochran led a group at UCLA, and they, they noticed that when they dissected out the basins, lymph basins with lymph nodes in them, uh, say in the armpit from a patient that had had a melanoma on the arm, uh, they noticed that the, there was a lot of inhibition going on in the lymphocytes and they were less responsive the closer they were to the tumour. So as they got further away from the tumour, the amount of responsiveness started to improve. The degree of inhibition started to get less. So there was this gradation. The tumour was, you know, must must have been producing something. It was it was postulated that there was there were chemicals being produced, and some of these were nailed down. And we did a little bit of work in our own lab, looking at cell lines to try and um, demonstrate uh, what was being produced by the the um, the tumours. So the tumours actually can produce factors that that downregulate the immune system close to the tumour. And you can if you pour um, Steve Rosenberg's group and, and others have shown that if you uh, renew the lymphocytes, uh, then they're much better in trying to improve tumor responses against the tumor than if you try to activate these switched off lymphocytes that are inside the tumor. So it's, it's you know, there's a lot of really interesting information around this. And we're starting to sort of unpick the immune system bit by bit by some of the results of these clinical studies, whether it's used neoadjuvant, whether it's used uh, in a standard treatment sense, or whether it's used post-surgery as an adjuvant, all slightly different in terms of what they're trying to achieve. And, and also whether you supply T-cells from outside, you mentioned CAR T-cells. So these are, these are sort of chimeric T-cells that have been designer T-cells, if you like, that have been taken out outside the body quite often, not always, but, but taken outside the body and then activated uh, and sometimes shown antigens that are associated with the particular tumour you're interested in, in treating. And then they've been the T-cell receptors have been modified such that they're likely to attack the tumour once they're put back into the body. So there's, there's a whole variety of approaches that are being used. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And gradually we're starting to understand more about how the immune system works in relation to the tumor itself. All right. So you think that the tumor is emitting 
certain substances that what cause the uh, the lymphocytes what not to approach it, or is it that when the lymphocytes oh yes okay, absolutely it's been the alternative would be that the lymphocytes approach the the tumor cells and there's actually a ligand or not one on their surface and so the tumor cells appear to be not of interest to the lymphocytes when they when they get next to them touch the ligands and try to bind with them. I guess there's two ways. There's kind of an active defense where the tumor could be putting out chemicals and, you know, a non-active one or a passive one that requires physical contact. Oh, look, I guess, although the distinction between the two might not be quite as, as great as uh, you might think, because, in fact, everything's a chemical interaction, isn't it? Whether the interaction is something that's being released and then it's, it's got a, an effect a little bit away or a long way away, uh, so a systemic effect, or whether it's something that's actually on the surface and there's direct surface chemical interaction is, is almost a moot point. It might make a difference in terms of, of trying to sort of treat the, the cancer if there's multiple deposits, for example, uh, where one bit might be trying to switch off another bit. And when you get success in one area, you lose success in others, perhaps. But but in, in real terms, these are chemical interactions occurring either on the surface, a short distance away, or maybe even a long distance away. It, it might actually be irrelevant. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like two different mechanisms of their extracellular vesicles given off by the tumor cells. That's one thing. And you might see more of a systemic effect because how could they keep them so hyperlocal unless the, the signals or the packages degrade? If it has to be super close contact where, again, a, a lymphocyte would have to analyze whether a ligand is of interest to it or not. I mean, it's, it seems to be a bit of a different mechanism. So I, I don't know. I would think that the nuance is somewhat important. Yeah, look, at, look, it could be, and it has been divided up, but it looks like it's kind of merging a lot. And, and so I'm not so sure anymore. I thought that there were strict differences between these two mechanisms, but, but maybe not. You know, we we really we're really sort of clutching at a lot of things at once, and this is one of the most confusing and confounding things about cancer treatment at the moment. That we've we've got so many different avenues that we're exploring that it, they're almost tripping us up in the process. And what we're probably uncovering too is some of the the complexity of the way cells work in general. Lymphocytes, for example behave a lot like tumour cells. They go through vessels, they um, get into lymphatics, of course, and they travel up to lymph nodes and then they circulate around the body. And then they come out of blood vessels and they go into tissues. So they're quite invasive beings, these, uh, these lymphocytes, or, or in fact, most of the white blood cell group. Uh, and, and included in that are things called macrophages as well. So macrophages are really interesting because they behave a lot like cancer cells. And it's even been theorized in, in, um, and quite strongly with some, some quite interesting and compelling evidence that normal cells fuse with macrophages and create these cancer cells that seem to have many of the qualities of a macrophage. So, so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty as to exactly what we're dealing with when we're dealing with a cancer cell. Most people think that cancer cells are an aberration of a normal cell, which has acquired a whole range of different metabolic characteristics. And this is where um, quite a number of people have suggested, like um, Charles Lineweaver and Paul Davies have suggested that, that you know, there's a, an ancestral change that occurs where the cell which is normally differentiated and behaves well and, and in an orderly fashion and and grows and stops according to uh, and divides and stops according to what it what is really needed for a particular tissue it sort of somehow loses that and it develops this ancestral characteristic which is very much like a, a bacterium for example where it it's principally anaerobic in its metabolism it likes an acid type environment it doesn't particularly like a lot of oxygen in its environment and tumors are very much like that so so there's there's a lot of uncertainty as to exactly what a tumor cell is 
and how it arises. It can be recognized quite well and quickly by pathologists just looking at them. So there's a pattern recognition that goes on with malignancy being different from the normal tissue. That's true. How do tumor cells tend to grow? Do they co-opt surrounding healthy cells to become tumor cells or do they just divide themselves and overwhelm the local environment? It's a great question. We generally have assumed that the tumor cells, in fact, cells that, that divide on their own, that create a massive tissue, that tissue contains a lot of stromal elements in it. It contains uh, a whole lymphocyte microenvironment within it, an immune microenvironment within it. It's got a whole lot of normal appearing cells. Um, it's got blood vessels, which are usually fundamentally different from blood vessels outside the tumour. So there's some they, they tend to be more leaky, the blood vessels inside the tumour. Uh, they tend to uh, have a slightly different endothelial appearance. And the, the tumours form its own microenvironment with, with essentially normal structural, structural elements, apart from the blood vessels, that actually support the tumour. And you can bring blood vessels in, normal blood vessels in, put normal endothelia in with uh, tumour cells and create uh, more order. You can do the opposite too. You can use a malignant or endothelial cells derived from malignancy and put those in with normal cells and make them more malignant. So there's a lot of microenvironmental influences that are going on that determine how the tumour behaves. You, you may be able, we may be able to actually switch it so that it behaves in a more normal way, which gets back to your question as to exactly what's going on here. Are there switches occurring in normal cells which make them behave like malignant cells? And, and or, or are there fundamentally uh, a range of cells that arise from clonally from a cell that that is just dividing, uh, creating more cells, and those cells divide and create more cells, and so you get a tumor mass. There's a lot of there's still a lot of unclear areas in our understanding of how what what a tumor really is and how a tumor really works. I mean, as as surgeons and and uh, others in the in the medical uh, trade, we we can have a look at tumors and see them and observe them and give them to the pathologist and diagnose them pathologists can diagnose them and those characteristics are fairly well established but exactly what underlies all that is far less well established have you gotten to the point where you've been able to get a resected tumor that has under, where the person's undergone immunotherapy and compared it histologically and looked at it and see the differences Yes. So, so the changes that occur are, are not just sort of one, one type of change. There's a whole range. And, and of course, when it's completely regressed, so very successful immunotherapy, uh, it's essentially just a scar. Uh, there's not much left there. But uh, yeah, immunotherapy, there's been a lot done on that recently. There are patterns that have emerged, but not sort of one single thing that you can really nail right down and say, and it depends, of course, on the type of immunotherapy you're talking about as well. So, you know, the changes that occur largely depend on the type of immunotherapy. Having said that, we know that a lot of the behavior of recurrence after immunotherapy, so we get really successful responses, we, um, we then watch the patient, and then some of those will recur. Some of them even recur on the immunotherapy. So, uh, there's a there's again a range of responses that can occur. It's not an all or one thing, unfortunately, which would be really nice because then we could nail it right down. But it's behaving in very much the way the body behaves to most things. So cancers, the response that cancers undergo when they undergo treatment is very similar to the way the body's normal cells actually work as well. There's there's a a spectrum of responses that that you might see after immunotherapy. What are the responses? What are some examples? 
Well, um, sometimes the the treatment doesn't work at all. So, so in for in melanoma, for example, there's there's probably some well over fifty percent of patients, and so probably in the vicinity of more like fifty to seventy percent of patients who do not show any material meaningful response to to the immunotherapy so in other words they they just don't seem to you know nothing seems to get into gear with them to actually act against the tumor so we're measuring largely tumor size on scans quite often sometimes you can see the tumors if they're on the surface and measure them physically and and look at them and photograph them but largely that it just doesn't work in those patients in another group, a smaller group, the responses are magnificent. The tumour just completely melts away and disappears in a very short time. And and you can measure this on scans. You can watch it uh, with your eyes when you're looking at, at visible uh, tumour deposits. Uh, so they're, they're truly almost magical type responses that are that are miraculous and and really very very good to see in another group of patients the responses are very mixed so some of them might disappear and some of them might remain you can you can also see uh, the tumor might undergo some sort of response in an early sense and then recurrence occurs and, and at that same location the tumor starts to grow um, other new tumor deposits can appear alternatively you can have this very long slow build-up that where nothing seems to be happening for a very long time and then all of a sudden bang there's an immune response starts to occur and there's there's a gradual decrease in the size of the tumor deposit that you've been measuring um, uh, or, or multiple metastases just start disappearing so there's, there's this sort of smorgasbord of responses, if you like. Right, but what are the what are the intermediate where, what are the intermediate responses look like? Again, if you resect those tumors that you know half-heartedly responded or partially responded, what was different you, you about mean, them? Do you mean histologically? What the, what do they yeah. look like? If you sequence their um, mutations, if you look at them histologically, if you yeah, if you look at them ten different ways on Sunday, like how are they different? from ones that don't respond at all. The ones that do respond completely, you have nothing left to look at, but you could at least look at the ones that just did nothing versus the ones that responded to some yeah. degree. And what is the difference at any yeah, level? And the, key difference, the key difference is the degree of immune infiltration. Um, so, so in ones that don't respond, there's often not much infiltration. In ones that do respond, or it's very patchy, at ones that do respond, there's often quite a, a considerable infiltration of, of lymphocytes and, and other immune what, what does that mean? Does it make the, the tumor look like a Swiss cheese? Like what happens you know, histologically? What looks different? How do you know there's infiltration? What's the hallmarks of that? Oh, you can, you can measure that with some markers that, that actually bind to the surface of the cells so that you can tell what cells are there. So they can be fluorescent markers or, or colorimetric markers of some type. So so it's easy to do that. That's a fairly straightforward process. It's it's harder to work out exactly what they're doing because you've got to measure things like activation. You've got to measure what they're secreting and so on. And one of the interesting things about the immune system is its plasticity. It has enormous plasticity. In fact. The more we understand about the body and the cells in the body, we're understanding that plasticity is an intricate, obligate phenomenon of human cells and indeed animal cells too, that, that we, we notice in lots of different ways. So by that, I mean that cells are not necessarily exactly what you're looking at. They're able to morph into other types of cells and this this goes back to your original question you know as to what you're dealing with here are these normal cells that have changed somehow or are they cells which are along a completely different lineage uh, that have that have um, formed part of a dividing mass that are all the same sort of cells that accrue mutations along their 
pathway. And, and that's certainly what we see. But the, the notion of plasticity is fascinating because it, and we're right on the edge of our understanding there too. And this is probably why we haven't solved so much of this, this because everything's very, it's, there's a, multi, a multitude of responses that we see and that makes us makes it very hard to observe regular patterns to to get a handle on this. Um, and then there must be some some guardrails though. Like, what if I single cell sequence? I don't know, fifty different cells in a given tumor. Then I give you know after it's been resected, and I compare. Yeah, well, sure. you know, and, so and let's say I look at two. It. Let's say I look Is at it? two tumors. What what will I see different yeah. in terms of let's say the heterogeneity of it or Again, the layout of the tumor, if they're both spheroid, does one look like, again, a Swiss cheese has been partially infiltrated? Or is it just like someone took a bite out of it? Or, you know, what do you see with your eyes? And I know it's complicated and there's a lot of stuff going on, but if you at least look physically with your eyes, maybe you'll see something, some sort of pattern change that seems to, you know, be consistent with, with this treatment. Yeah, well, there's a lot reported, and but so far no consistent pattern has emerged, and that that in itself is interesting. It's suggesting that that what's happening is is a somewhat chaotic, random process that's occurring within the tumor, and that if its net sum is ablatory, then it will end up in the tumor being ablated. If the net sum is not is is on a growth phase, then the tumor will keep growing. So um, we we just like there's no there's no consistent pattern that's emerged. What we do know though is that different metastases have different mutations in them. They're not consistent. So we had thought at one stage in our, historically we we had thought that tumors were from a primary tumor and went to secondary metastatic tumors elsewhere in the body and that they bore some very close relationship and of course they do at a at a macroscopic level so the histology of the broad histology of the primary tumor resembles the metastases or or more properly the metastases resemble the primary from where they came so you can you can show histologically that a tumor that begins say in the in the skin or the breast actually can spread to an organ like the lung or the liver and it resembles the same tumor that it originated from histologically under the microscope so that's that's pretty clear and that's been known for a very long time now what's also been noticed more recently is that when you drill down a bit more and you start to look at the genetics of these tumors we know that we even within the primary the there is genetic heterogeneity in the cells so not all the cells the tumor cells that are in the tumor are actually exactly alike genetically they've already started to change their genetics and there's a, a there's heterogeneity crept in where the cells are no longer as consistent as they are say in a, in, in an organ like the liver where the cells are are very regular they're very genetically similar they behave in a in a very logical orderly way and they they resemble each other in almost every aspect so the, the main parenchymal cells, the cells that do the function in the liver, they are very, very similar. And, and that's true of, say, the skin. It's true of um, the bowel lining and, and lots of other tissues as well. The cells represent a lot of similarity in a normal tissue. In a cancer, the cells represent a lot of heterogeneity. There's, there's a similarity between them so that if you looked at the cells, they would look roughly similar. But when you measure the genetics inside them, then there's a lot more variation than you see in the normal tissue. And it gets more complex than that, so that when they metastasize, the metastases represent a genetic variation on the primary. And 
each metastasis as it further metastasizes, which can happen from the primary again, uh, so a second metastasis and third and so on, or it can happen from the metastasis itself, which can re-metastasize to somewhere else, then uh, you've got this, this picture of enormous heterogeneity, not only within the individual tumor deposit, but between tumors in different locations. Well, if I was to take, uh, again, uh, let's say, a, I don't know, I'll just pick a tumor, it's a spheroid, do a couple hundred single cell sequencing on the different cells in it. Could I then use computer modeling to take it back in time and reconstitute how it got to where it is, how it grew, how the lineages, you know, developed? Has anyone tried to do that? Can someone do that? Yeah. So, so people, people looked at that and, and it's really interesting. It's really fascinating because the quite a number of groups have looked at, at, um, at this particular aspect. Without, with moderate success, but it, it's, it's really just demonstrated the amount of the, the spectrum of change that's occurred in cells that we call cancer. So we, we talk about a cancer as, as one thing. You know, someone's got breast cancer, someone's got colon cancer, or someone's got melanoma or something like that. But in fact, it's, it represents a, a whole range of, of different genetic aberrations that are occurring within the deposit, as I mentioned, and also in different deposits. And, and people have tried drilling down at this. There's, there's a lot of big data studies going on at the moment around the world looking at, at the genetics of, of tumours. Um, it's surprisingly difficult to obtain samples of tumour from different areas of the body um, in the individual patient. So if someone's got five metastases or, or 20 metastases or something, it's, it's often very difficult to get samples of all of those metastases. We don't normally do it clinically. Uh, and it, it's rather frustrating in a way. It's limited by a number of things. It's limited by um, ethics. There's, there's usually an ethical constraint on, on taking tissue for research and the number of samples that can be taken, even if the patient agrees. Um, it, there's often a, a, a institutional limitation that occurs um, and uh, hard to see why sometimes, but it's the way it works. It seems to be working. And it, uh, it, it's very hard to get uh, down to tin tacks about what's actually happening in the individual patient. For example, it would be really nice to know from a patient's perspective, you know, if a patient was at risk of dying from a tumour and they had multiple metastases everywhere, what would be wrong with taking samples of these tumours and really studying them intensely? Um, as, as you're sort of alluding to, if you did this in a, in a range of patients and looked at them in a lot of detail, these patterns might become a bit clearer. We're doing it to a degree so people can have biopsies of, of several different areas, but we're not doing it perhaps as exhaustively as we might. And there's a sort of degree of protection going on too, uh, where people, communities, governments and, and so on, um, regulators, uh, don't really want researchers to go to extreme lengths because of the risk that it might uh, put and disadvantage it might place a patient who might not understand this properly. Um, but I think a lot of patients do, and they understand it a lot better than, than perhaps we give them credit for. And really, if the chips are down and the choice is you either, you either try and explore uh, exhaustively in a very scientific way the patient's particular tumour or the patient is going to die, then there's, there's not a hell of a lot to lose, really. Uh, in terms of of trying to unpick exactly what's happening in that particular patient, it, the problem's time and the resources, because often this is incredibly an incredibly costly exercise and it's incredibly time consuming exercise. But it may well lead us to 
a much better understanding of exactly why our treatments are working and also why they're failing. What, what is the difference between a neoplasm and a, you know, a cancerous tumor? Has that been looked at? What's been observed? A neoplasm just means new growth. So a neoplasm can either be benign or malignant. Neoplasm is, is often used interchangeably with cancer, but it's not exactly true. So you can have a benign neoplasm, which is not a cancer. You can have a malignant neoplasm, which is a cancer. So the does it does that help explain it? It doesn't really explain anything. I, I understand that neoplasm is different from cancer, but what is observed that's different? Neoplasm seems to have some of the hallmarks of cancer. You know, let's say in endometriosis or other conditions. You know, the, the, the cells grow somewhat out of control. They invade. They change the local microenvironment. So what, what's the difference between, again, a neoplasm or a benign tumor versus a non-benign tumor? Yeah. Um, so endometriosis is usually classified a bit differently, but you're quite right that it has some of the characteristics. I mean, a placenta, for example, is very similar to a tumor. So there's a lot of tissues that we regard as benign uh, that are not strictly neoplasms, but behave in a very neoplastic, malignant way, if you like. Um, so benign tumors generally have a pushing border, which sort of grows outwardly in a, in a more orderly way. Malignant tumors tend to have an invasive border, but they can also have a, a, a pseudo capsule around them and a, and a so-called pushing type border as well. So um, there's a lot of variation in the way tissues grow and change and what you end up with. You know, people have looked at, at there's been a lot of work, um, some coming out of the Mayo Clinic looking at, at um, and other places looking at um, the role of the placenta and the similarities between the placenta and the and malignant invasive tumors a lot of similarities and and it, it it this this sort of harks back to this notion of some sort of ancestral behavior that's going on with the tumor it is behaving like a very primitive thing that that is entity that that is, for example, related to the very origins of mammalian placentation. It tends to do this, and and we do know that that bits of uh, so-called foreign placenta can break off and run around the body of of a uh, pregnant woman, and that these can still be picked up uh, when the patient is uh, in their eighties a long time down the track so that they have little parts of the previous pregnancy floating around their body and lodging in various parts uh, which which are completely have no effect on the on the mother but this but they're there so part of her child is still circulating around her body a pretty scary thought but it shows that this notion of malignancy this notion of metastasis is is not exactly confined to cancer although we we tend to uh, talk about metastasis as related to cancer and in and to some degree infection because infections can metastasize too but we we tend to reserve metastasis for uh, tumors uh, when in fact metastasis occurs in lots of other situations which are which are not cancerous we don't regard as cancerous so back to the immune therapy, uh, what, are there, is there particular experimentation that you're engaged in or are you reviewing the literature to see what's being done independent of you, you know, to guide you forward? Oh, both. You know, what's happening in the literature is really exciting and, and it's, it's great to watch this unfold, but it's frustrating because a lot of the questions like the ones you're asking are really, really important, but we, we sometimes feel like we're getting further away even though we're getting closer. And what I mean by that is that the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And part of frustration and our difficulty is that that we're learning so much. And, and one of the passages I was just reading in the book while I was waiting to come on this interview was um, the American College of Surgeons just got a really nice little books just arrived um, when with my membership. And, and it, it's got... A really nice 
section on immunotherapy. And what it says is that 10 years ago, we had none of this was registered. None of this was was really around. It was being used experimentally. And we were essentially not making the strides that we're making now. And uh, so immunotherapy has gone from being something that that so many people didn't believe in. There was only just a few of us that, that had been working in the field for many decades. And, uh, and, and a whole lot of people that were really retired who'd been working on it all their lives, and they believed in it still, but largely most of the medical community didn't. And, and it's been transformed within a 10-year period, completely transformed. So we're starting now to understand and unpick how immunotherapy works. Now, from my own work, we, we were looking at, at the infiltrating cells within tumours. And what I found, I started out by, by looking, this is many years ago um, during my PhD, we, we, we started looking at, at uh, the similarities or differences between melanoma, breast cancer, and, and colon cancer. And what we found was really fascinating because there was such similarity in the lymphocyte pattern that occurred within tumours that we took from patients and sectioned, and we could we could stain them with special stains, which it, which was all all in its infancy then, and we could uh, monoclonal antibody stains that uh, that were able to pick up these cells very specifically. There was a flurry of interest at that time, and we demonstrated that essentially the three which were regarded as, as incredibly diverse tumours that had no real relationship to each other therapeutically, we found that the lymphocyte populations were almost identical. So all of my work has really sprung <laughs> from that. And we started to look at vaccines. I got involved in, in several studies. And we are now looking at, at ways that you can vaccinate to try and improve the immune responses to uh, to cancers that are that are in the patient that you want to try and and, and uh, induce regression with. So it's got very very fascinating, and it it looks like, as I mentioned in one of my earlier podcasts, that that the immune system is already primed. It's already looking at at cells which have aberration on their surface, and it is sometimes able to uh, remove those cells completely early. So maybe at the one or two cell stage, just completely get rid of them. But when it can't, the cells grow and you, you have all these problems that we've been talking about this morning. You have all of these difficulties with, with cells that, that are genetically different from the cell that they arose from, uh, that have different um, patterns of, of antigens or, or specific chemicals on their surface uh, and that have different patterns of activation of the immune system. And they're all within the same tumour mass and mixed in with those are normal cells which behave, which have, have been sort of hijacked by these cells and, and behave in, in slightly different ways to produce different factors. Um, you've got blood vessels that, that have been modified by these cells uh, and they've taken over to create their own organ, if you like, and, and tissue. But it's, not, it's, an, it's almost a non-functional organ. It, it consumes energy and it consumes nutrition, but it doesn't really contribute back to the viability of the host, not like a liver or a kidney or something like that. That, that actually contributes something back in, a, in a, an organisational productive sense. The tumour just grows and it can, in a, in a fairly haphazard fashion, and it, it starts to take over and invade and damage organs. And that's, of course, how, how mortality comes from a tumour. It, uh, in, in most senses, in some senses, we just don't know how people die from cancer. Um, mostly it's disturbance of an underlying organ or function that's going on in the patient, which leads to the death of the patient. But, but in some cases, we still don't know why they actually succumb. Sometimes it's a nutritional thing where there's products like cachexin being produced, which actually cause cachexia 
or or wasting uh, of the patient and the patient just can't actually harness any energy because the tumor is busy taking it all and 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 transforming the normal tissue to uh, to to make it inefficient uh, in in being able to to um, deal with the uh, utilize the energy but um so the so the tumor is is a remarkable entity which has its own immune system locally and it affects the systemic immune system as well. And they're not necessarily, what we've come to discover is they're not necessarily the same thing. So what's happening locally in a tumor deposit is not necessarily what's happening systemically and measurable systemically out in the periphery, in the blood, for example. So we've got this this fascinating uh, situation where this entity is growing inside the body it's able to sometimes spread, sometimes it stays locally, but sometimes it spreads. And when it spreads, it takes on a different persona almost, and it it's mutationally different. It has its own differences in the way it stimulates the immune system or doesn't. And, and so the primary can behave differently to the secondary, and another secondary can behave differently to the last secondary. And so tumour I'm talking about, it, uh, so the metastases can individually behave differently from the primary and from each other. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work, which I always ask because you know you have a lot of novel thoughts about cancer. So where can they go? Uh, so really just just through uh, University of Adelaide email. Okay, all right. And then we'll, we'll post that. Just Google, it'll come up. They can Google your name too, Brendan Coventry. University of Adelaide, and then uh, they can find out and see some of your papers, et cetera, right? Yes, they can They can have a look. A lot of the papers are listed, and uh, Google usually brings them up anyway. Okay. Well, very good. Brendan, thank you for coming back uh, a third time. It was the charm, and I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for running these, Richard. It's uh, magnificent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.